So uh, we're going to be uh, at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And I'll just be reading parts, but I'll be trying to kind of paint the, the arc of the story as we go through it. So verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1 uh, meets us right in the creation account where God is creating the whole world, all of the cosmos. And here he bends down to create mankind. Uh, and verse 26 of Genesis 1 tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fishes, fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in this creation account, we have a couple of things. One, we're told that man is made in the image of God. And secondly, we're told a little bit of what that means, that man is made in the image of God. And you'll notice that man's make, being made in God's image is man being given dominion over the creation. God makes man in his image. And the result of being made in God's image is that man has dominion over all the rest of God's creation. Because God, as the creator, has dominion over his own creation. And he as, uh, essentially deputizes Adam and Eve to be co-regents over that creation. They're going to rule that creation on God's behalf to steward it. And the result of that stewardship should be uh, what we see in verse 28, if you look with me there in the text. God blesses them, and the result of their stewardship should be that they would be fruitful, and they would multiply, and they would fill the earth and subdue it. And they would have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam's commission, the perfect creation, is that man would rule over the earth to be fruitful and multiply and to reign as God's ambassadors on the earth. Now, Genesis takes a turn in chapter 3 where you see the fall. Uh, and after the result of the fall, something happens where man's ability to carry out this commission is broken. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, brokenness that results in this. But what you see as a, a downstream effect is man is still preserved despite the curse. And it takes us then to Genesis 17 where we meet a man called Abraham. And Abraham is downstream of the fall, downstream of the curse. But he is going to be selected by God and uniquely tasked with the, uh, the command that Adam was tasked with to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. So this is in Genesis chapter 17. And I'm going to be looking at verse 4 of that text. This is God speaking to Abraham. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Listen to this, verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and my offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So just like God was in right relationship with Adam, and he gives him the command to dominate the earth, to have dominion over it, here God selects Abraham as a special man out of the population of the earth and essentially gives him the same command. I want you to be a nation of kings, to rule over a land which I have given you. And he blesses him and says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and essentially let nations be blessed as a result of your influence on them. If you read the account of Genesis, that promise is actually kept. Abram has, uh, after he is Abraham, he has Isaac through Sarah. 
Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, uh, who we know as later being the 12 tribes of Israel. But this promise to Abraham is given uh, from Abram to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and then to Jacob's 12 sons. It doesn't go to all 12 of them. It goes to one of those 12 sons. And I want to look at Genesis 49. It's right at the end of the book of Genesis where you see that narrative take place. Genesis chapter 49, and this is verse 8. So Jacob is passing the blessings on to his children, and he names each of them individually. And of that list, verse 8 just tells us of the tribe of Judah. He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who would dare to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So to Judah, the promise given is, you will rule, right? The scepter's uh, staff will not depart from Judah, meaning the ruling authority of Israel will not depart from this tribe. And what will happen is all the rulers of the earth will come to him, And verse 10 tells us until all tribute comes to him and to him will be the obedience of the peoples. Another way to say that is all the obedience of the nations will come to Judah into his line. It's like, okay, how does that take place? Because uh, if you read about Judah in Genesis, he's not really a good character. In fact, he does a lot of wicked things. So what is this? What is this talking about? Well, uh, as the storyline of scripture unfolds, Israel goes into slavery. Then they're led out of an exodus. Uh, Moses repeats this promise of a king coming from the line of Israel, that a king is duly appointed to them. But in 1 Samuel, we meet who that king is. It's not Saul, it's David, David from the line of Judah. And God confirms this suspicion of the, of the author of 1 Samuel, because when you get to 2 Samuel in chapter 7, if you'll turn there with me, you'll see that this promise to Judah is echoed specifically to David and to his lineage. David being an offspring of Judah makes sense. He's God's confirming his covenant with the offspring of Judah. And this is a promise that God gives to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verse 12. So God speaks with David. David essentially is talking to God and saying, Will you let me build the temple? God says, no, you won't. One of your offspring will. And then he gives him this this confirmation of a covenant. Verse 12 of chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Now, verse 16 is the continuation of this covenant. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That echoes the language to Judah. The scepter will not depart from you. Your throne will be established forever. And verse 17, in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this visitation, Nathan, who's the prophet of God, is the one speaking then to David. So the promise goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah. And then we don't have a long, strong lineage of Judah's offspring, but it takes it all the way through to David, who we know is a descendant of Judah. 
And then uh, something strange happens. David has a son, Solomon. Solomon is the one who builds the temple, who confirms part of this uh, prophecy. But he doesn't fulfill all of it because he actually uh, doesn't live according to God's law as the king is supposed to. So Solomon uh, isn't perfectly obedient as he ought to have been. Solomon has a son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam actually splits the kingdom in half. And then uh, it's all kind of downhill, uh, slow downhill for for Judah, fast downhill for Israel. But it's all downhill from there. Uh, The golden age of Israel is, is by and large gone. And this takes Israel into the exile, where they are first enslaved by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then uh, the uh, people, uh, Alexander the Great, the Macedonians. Then they're enslaved by the Romans, which is where we arrive in the New Testament, where Jesus is. And this takes us to an announcement of Jesus's birth. And after this, I'm going to have us do some readings together, but we're going to be in Luke chapter one, where an angel comes to Mary and essentially re-ups all the promises of old. But uniquely through an offspring of David, who is Christ. And this is Luke chapter 1. I'll just be reading a small selection of Gabriel's interaction with Mary, but it starts in verse uh, 30 of Luke chapter 1. And here, uh, Gabriel comes down to Mary, and I'll start reading from, from verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and gives her a proclamation. And the proclamation is, your child will re-up the promises given to David, given to Jacob, given to Judah, given to Abraham, given to Adam. And he will be the fulfillment of these things. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He will reign over the house of his father, Jacob, forever. So this is the Old Testament anticipation of the promise of God. And this takes us now to what I would call the New Testament reflection on that promise. And this is where I'm going to ask uh, some of you for help in reading. Uh, Luke not only records the historical events, but he also does something interesting. He records some of the first century uh, people who are living through these events. He records their songs of worship as a result of, of observing what's going on. The first one he, he records is in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. Um, and if someone would be willing to read, uh, it's essentially from verse 46 all the way through verse 55. Um, if not, we can just kind of, yeah, go ahead, Kendra. Wonderful. So that's Mary's. Uh, that's out there in front of you. Before we reflect on that, uh, I want to read Zechariah's, which is in verse 68 of that same chapter. Uh, verse 68 all the way through verse 79. Would anyone be willing to read that section of Luke? Mm, thank you. Uh, the, so those are probably the two longest of these reflection hymns. The third one is just one verse long. It's in chapter 2, verse 14. And it's from the angelic host and their song. Uh, would anyone be willing to read uh, chapter 2, verse 14 of Luke? And then the fourth of these, and you'll see kind of how these all tie together in a moment. But the fourth of these is also in chapter 2. Uh, this one is in verse 29 uh, of that chapter. And this is a man who bumps into Jesus in the temple. And it's from verse 29 through verse 32. And I would just need one more volunteer to read this last section. Thank you. So here we have uh, what I would say is 
worship as a response of the events that are unfolding. And you can see uh, the historical narrative of Jesus in the Advent season doesn't just terminate with intellectual confirmation of what happened. For each of these people who are, let's say, primary witnesses to it, it, it has to terminate in an act of worship. You see this. Luke, Luke records four instances, and undoubtedly these are just a sampling of the kind of worship that we see. Uh, the first uh, hymn of worship uh, is Mary's Song of Praise. It's called the Magnificat. That's because in the Latin translation, it's the first word there. But uh, she says, my soul magnificats or magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now you might be saying, why is Mary so excited unless she understands all of the promises that are coming to pass in this announcement? Now, she doesn't have a perfect picture, right? We, we even see this in the life of Jesus. She has a dim, veiled understanding of what's going on. But nevertheless, she has a picture. And her picture is clear enough to at least ascertain what she records here. And, and just look at some of the things that she reflects on in the life of Jesus in his, in his advent. She says that all generations will call her blessed. That's in verse 48 of chapter 1. Uh, verse 50, she says, his mercy, which is God's mercy, is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. Now, why can she say that? Because, verse uh, 51, he has shown great strength with his arm because he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent, sent away empty. Verse 54 is the confirmation of these promises. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring. So Mary is connecting the birth of Jesus with the promise to Abraham, which is uh, the promise to her fathers. And this promise is that God will save his people despite their unfaithfulness, despite their sin, despite their fallenness. And this takes us to, let's say, at least one thing that is really important about the Advent revelation, which is that Jesus is fully man, but he's not sinful humanity. This is, this is why uh, the virgin birth is so important. Every person born under Adam, born under the curse, an offspring of Adam, we see this with Abraham, with Judah, with David, Solomon, they're all born under sin, under the curse, which means that they have this inclination of this proclivity to sin. Uh, when given the opportunity to choose the good or choose the evil, they routinely do things that they shouldn't be doing. They violate God's law. They, they do all kinds of sinful things. David, uh, I think, is the best example of this because his sin stands uh, as, a, as a famous, uh, even, even in the 21st century, in our minds, of his, his affair with Bathsheba, the adultery he commits. And he had everything. He even had the promises of God, and he still does that kind of thing. Well, this is showing us that we need a better representative. We need someone who's really a man, but one who can actually fulfill perfectly the things which man should fulfill. So under Adam, under the seed of Adam, all are in this depravity state. They're all under sin, except for Jesus, who is born, yes, as a fully human person through Mary, but not under, uh, let's say, a male heir. He's actually born under a direct descent from, from God. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So Jesus doesn't have this original sin brokenness that other men before him had. And so he can actually fulfill these promises perfectly. He doesn't have that same proclivity towards sin. He's, a, he's really a human but he's all the, all the parts of humanity that were pre-fall, pre-sin. He's the, he's the new Adam, as, as Paul will call him. So Jesus can fulfill these things. And this new Adam is supposed to do things that fulfill all the promises of old, all the promises, as Mary here says, that were spoken to the fathers 
to Abraham and to his offspring. So the hope of all of Israel is now coming to a finite point in Jesus' advent, in his, in his birth. Now that takes us then to the second reflection, the, the song of Zechariah. And that one is the longest of the three. Part of this is because he's not only reflecting on Jesus, he's also reflecting on his own son's role in the Jesus story, that his son will be the forerunner of this Messiah. But you'll notice the language is very similar to Mary's language. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 76 of, of his, his song. He says, and you, child, he's talking to his own son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Now, what kind of salvation is Zechariah talking about? Well, in the very next line, he clarifies. It's salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet in the way of peace. So, so Zechariah is doing something. He's defining for us the kind of salvation that Israel needs. And what does that salvation mean? The first thing, it's, this is important to note, there's this huge misunderstanding in the first century, uh, in first century Israel. I would even say in 21st century America that the kind of salvation we need is something that we define, whether that be salvation from our physical ailments, salvation from our political problems, salvation from socioeconomic woes, uh, salvation from other foreign governments, salvation from uh, whatever you have, whatever, whatever that thing is. We all have that thing that we think if this was fixed, salvation would arrive to humanity. Some people think it's education. When I was a, a teacher uh, for the first couple of years, I lived in Italy. This was the, kind of the message we were told uh, as teachers and as our public school administrators. They would all say, as, if we got education out to all the people, if everyone was educated and literate and could do math, then poverty would go away, war would go away, all this stuff, right? This, this hypothetical situation in the future. But scripture disagrees with us. We've never been more educated in human history than we are right now as a, as a society. And we've never been able to fight so many wars at such a large scale than we can right now. So education isn't the solution. Salvation is not from X thing that we think it is. Zechariah tells us salvation is, verse 77, in the forgiveness of their sins. The primary problem people have is not salvation from some social woe. It's salvation from our own brokenness before God, our own lack of holiness before God. We need forgiveness of our sins, which are things that we have that make us unholy, unable to be in relationship with God. The reason Adam, when he's cursed and fallen, they have to go out of the garden because they can no longer be in the presence of God. So Zechariah knows this is a problem. People need forgiveness of sin. Now, what does forgiveness of sin look like? Verse 79 tells us forgiveness of sin is something that allows us to guide our feet in the way of peace. It guides our feet in the way of peace. Now, this is really important because when the angels come to the shepherds in their song, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, that does not mean universal peace, un, uh, unspecific to anyone who is under the sound of my voice. It means peace in the way that Zechariah talks about peace, namely peace between man and between God. The angels even clarify that on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. Some translations will say, among those in whom God finds favor. There are people on the earth who God has called to himself, and he sends Christ into the world to give peace as an actual substantive reality to those people. Peace to those in whom he is pleased. 
So the peace is not some general socioeconomic peace. It's not some societal peace. It's peace between humans and God, the strife that we have between him, namely because of our sin. So Christ comes to deal with our sin. And this is not something that is just a Jewish salvation promise. And that's why we read that fourth song of praise. You'll notice when Mary reflects, she says, this is the promise spoken to Abraham and to his offspring. Zechariah talks about the promise given to the people of Israel. Uh, That's in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This very specific Jewish kind of advent. The angels come to shepherds who are no doubt shepherds in Israel. And then here, Simeon in the temple in chapter 2, verse 29, 30, 31, and 32, gives us the, the Lukean flavor of how far this salvation expands. And he says, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people, Israel. Now here is the beauty of of the Advent message. It's not just salvation to the Israelites for their sins. It's salvation to all people, regardless of ethnicity, creed, race, gender, whatever. Regardless of any of those factors, salvation goes to all those in whom God finds favor. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, which basically means anyone who's not an Israelite, and glory to the people of Israel. So this salvation goes forth, and it goes, uh, as Paul says, uh, the gospel goes forth to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. Now, if you're thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not Greek, I'm not from Greece, that means in Paul's language, anyone who's not Jewish, right? So that would be, I think, everyone present in the room. Uh, which is good because here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the world on a place that hadn't even been like drawn up on any world maps at the time that Jesus is born into the world. And yet the gospel has gone at least this far onto the planet. And not only has the gospel gone this far, but if you go around this city anywhere, uh, you'll find churches worshiping on Sunday, every Sunday. You'll find churches, even, it's even embedded into our culture where we still have Christmas off every single year despite the fact that our culture by and large doesn't actually acknowledge the true reason of it, this is how far this message has gone, that people are giving other people days off of work and, and all this stuff. The, the Christmas message had made this sharp impact in our culture. And so in, in light of all of that impact, it's important that we see, well, what does the scripture say about the impact of Christmas? What's the true impact? It is certainly a, a world-shaping message, but the message is actually a pretty simple one. You and I are sinners before God. Uh, we're broken. We're fallen. We actually stand condemned. And not because we have sin that we inherited from Adam, but we actually participate in the sin that we've gotten from Adam. So yes, we have this proclivity to brokenness, but we also actually engage in it because we want to do it. Paul actually describes sin as the very thing that he doesn't really want to do, but, you know, he kind of wants to do. That's the kind of thing he keeps on doing. And and we talk about our own brokenness like that as well. We say, well, you know, I, I know I shouldn't do that thing, but in the moment I want to do that thing, so I do it. That's kind of what sin, that's the grip it has on us. And yet, God sends his son into the world for us who are in that kind of a condition to rescue us. Jesus says he's going to give us new hearts. He's going to put his spirit within us. And he's going to cause us to be obedient to God's law. But not so that we are obedient from this point forward, but actually our whole righteousness before God is is founded on Christ's obedience. He comes into the world not just to be a king over his people, but he actually has to make a people for himself. And to do that, he has to do something which is very poorly understood, at least in the early advent of of Christmas, which is that he needs to go to the cross and die. And he needs to die so that all people would actually be able to have peace with God among those to whom the message goes. 
When Christ dies on the cross, he makes peace possible. And, and when, he, when he leaves his followers, he doesn't, he doesn't just leave them uh, without any instruction. He actually does give them instructions. He says, when you gather regularly, you're going to do certain things in remembrance of me. You're going to gather together. You're going to read the word aloud. Uh, you're going to pray for one another. You're going to admonish one another. You're going to encourage one another. Paul writes all these instructions to the church. Uh, but in that, in, in that kind of instruction that Paul gives he, to, to the church in Corinth, he, he tells them to use their spiritual gifts, to love one another, to gather together regularly, to uh, rebuke one another in sin, to call one another to holiness. But one of the things he tells them to do is to eat the Lord's Supper as a regular reminder of all of these things that God has accomplished. So we don't just need to wait for December 25th every single year in order to remember the advent of Christ. Actually, the advent of Christ's incarnation, his death, burial, and resurrection are all reflected on as the church gathers every single week. Uh, one of the ways we do that as a, as a picture of this is we, we take communion. And so communion is our time of, of, of remembrance, to look back at these events and to say, this is something that I trust in for my salvation as well. That I want to be one who is found at peace with God, and I want to be counted as part of these people among whom he proclaims peace. And that requires something as simple as swearing allegiance to him, and then regularly participating in that by reminding yourself of that reality. Uh, we are a forgetful people. Uh, we need to regularly remind ourselves uh, where we got to go to drive to work, uh, what directions we need to go this way and that. We need to regularly remind ourselves of plans that we have throughout the week. Uh, we can forget important things, and we need to remind ourselves of really important things often. And that's one of the reasons we do this on a weekly basis as a church. So with that being said, we're going to now enter into a time of, of communion where we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Um, what I'm going to do first, though, is I'm going to give you a little bit of time, maybe about uh, 30 seconds to a minute, to go before the Lord in prayer. And this is a time where you can confess any sin that is unconfessed, anything that is still remaining outstanding to be confessed. And you can have a clean offer of forgiveness from God. God says, uh, if you confess anything to me, I will forgive you. That's his, his offer. That's, that's what Jesus came to accomplish. So it's not just a truth that we uh, mentally assent to. It's something we actually practice on the ground. So take about 30 seconds to confess your sins to the Lord, and then we will take the supper.